welcome to the Evolution of Business podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Brady, and I'm excited to be here today with Bill Browning. So Bill is one of the green building and real estate industry's foremost thinkers and strategists and an advocate for sustainable design solutions at all levels of business, government, and civil society. His expertise has been sought out by organizations as diverse as Fortune 500 companies, leading universities, nonprofit organizations, the military, and foreign governments. Uh, He has high-profile demonstration projects, including Walmart's EcoMart, the Greenings of the White House, the National Aquarium, Disney Hong Kong, the Pentagon, Lucasfilm, Grand Canyon National Park, and the Sydney 2000 Olympic Village. Uh, Beginning in 2004, Bill was a director of design and environment for Haymount, a new urbanist community in Virginia. And in this capacity, he led the development site planning, authored a set of design guidelines, and guided development of innovative infrastructure systems. He's also been a founding member of the U.S. Green Building Council. He's served on the boards of Greening America. Uh, this this resume goes on for for quite a while of an unbelievable amount. You know, I'm I'm trying to think. You know, you must have been one of the very first, uh, or or definitely a pioneer in in green building and sustainability. Because I know that it's certainly become more popular recently. But but you've got you've got quite a long career of of leading the way. So, um, Bill, thanks so much for coming on. Andrew, thanks. Happy to be here. Um, yeah, we started in 1991. Uh, when just even trying to define what a green building was was difficult, you know, before LEED, before the U.S. Green Building Council, before any of that stuff. And uh, <clears throat> we knew there was something there that we had to talk about and help designers and owners understand that there was a different way of building, right? That we could do buildings that didn't do so much harm, that actually help people and help the environment. And so that's what we set out to do at Rocky Mountain Institute in 1991. So what was it that, that led you? I know that you had, uh, you know, you had your bachelor's degree in environmental design. Uh, you, you did have from a, sounds like a, an early age, this, this passion for the environment and sustainability. Is there anything you can point to that really kicked off that passion? No, my, I've, I've been asked that before, and I asked my parents, I, you know, when did you see it? And they're like, no, you know, you remember the first book you bought with your own money was Born Free uh, <laughs> uh, by Joy Adams. And it's like, yeah, okay, yeah. Um, Cousteau was my hero growing up, uh, so, so I've always been interested in it. And I uh, thought I was going to be an architect and went to design school, uh, got out of school, and... Um, built Buckminster Fuller's last building with uh, an experimental greenhouse and then uh, uh, really realized what I was most interested in was the sort of interaction between the natural world and the built world and how do we really explore that in a way that benefits both. Yeah, that that interaction and and it, really that that modeling sometimes of the of the built environment off the natural world. One of your uh, one of your books here, the the economics of biophilia. So so to, and and mid century unmodern. So tell us a little bit. Um, many may be familiar, but tell us a little bit about that term biophilia. It's it's one that I've certainly grown to grown to to like, and in the economics of biophilia even more. So biophilia comes from the social psychologist Eric Fromm. It literally means love of nature, but it really didn't get any traction until uh, E.O. Wilson at Harvard wrote the book Biophilia and talking about how there's this innate connection to nature. And 
you know, some people kind of go, yeah, right. But the flip side, biophobia is equally real, right? So that, how many people actually die of snakes and spiders? Hmm. Not that many, right? Far more die of cars and lots of other things. But we, you know, share a snake or a spider to a lot of folks and you get a very instant reaction. And so that's an ingrained biophobia that we kind of carry around as genetic memory. Biophilia is this connection to nature. And you think about it, the oldest evidence of buildings are only 10,000 years old. We've been around for a species at least 200,000 years. So we spent the whole rest of that time out in nature. And so it makes sense that we're attuned to what's going on in nature and uh, and experiences of nature. So biophilia for us is really this exploring the science of how do these experiences of nature impact people? And we're interested not just in the psychological response of, oh, isn't that pretty, isn't that nice? But we're actually interested in what happens in your brain, what happens in your home, in your stress hormones, what happens to your heart rate, what happens to your blood pressure. Um, we're looking for the physiological response as well. Yeah, yeah. I've actually, you're taking me back to, to my master's degree. I was down at the University of Pennsylvania and it was a master's in applied positive psychology. And there's all different elements of of positive psychology and just psychology in general, where they can now measure something as simple as a, as a walk in the park or the the benefits to your well-being of even just looking up at a, at a clear night sky and seeing the stars and that feeling of awe and how that connects you to to the earth and and connects you to you know something something larger than yourself and the and the impacts on on your well-being yeah it's pretty extraordinary to watch and uh and what's been fun and in the last few years as we've gotten to know and involved more and more with neuroscientists is that a lot of the earlier psychological theories now we can now actually see, yeah, that's actually what's going on in the brain. Um, we don't always know why, but we can see the what of what's happening, and it's pretty extraordinary. So when you're when you're learning um, from biophilia, you're you're trying to say let's let's connect with nature, but there's also elements of of how you can use maybe the wisdom of of nature and and how things have evolved to to build buildings more sustainably and in a more green way. So are there any, for, for those that may not be as familiar, are there, are there anything, any examples you can give of, of different things either you've built or you know others that have built that have kind of learned from nature to, to build more sustainably? Sure. There's a whole field uh, separate from biophilia, uh, which is the love of nature and connection to nature. There's also a whole field of science called biomimicry, which is literally asking, how does nature do that? And not trying to go out and harvest nature and use natural materials, but actually ask the question of how does nature make that material or, and that. And, you know, here in the Rochester area, um, some of the folks at Kodak played around with that with optics. And, you know, what are the optical systems that nature uses? Lenses and transmitting light uh, and technologies like that. And then replicating that in man-made technologies. In buildings, there are some really interesting examples, too. One is a famous building in Zimbabwe that um, where the power costs were really high and the electricity wasn't always stable. And so they wanted to do a building that would be easier to run and would 
keep going when power went off. So they went and they looked at termite mounds. And termite mounds are pretty extraordinary because the termites are, you know, we think they're just eating paper and, uh, you know, and, and chewing up bark and stuff like that. But actually what the termites are doing is getting cellulosic material, getting that material and feeding it to mushrooms because what they actually eat are mushrooms. And so inside that great big tower that you see, uh, the tropical termite mounds, which, you know, put it in perspective, if um, termites were the size of humans, uh, these would be mile-high skyscrapers. And what they're doing is in the core of that is they're farming mushrooms. And the temperatures in these places are crazy high and have fairly big variations, but the mushrooms are really particular. They can only survive in a very narrow bandwidth of temperature and humidity. And so those giant structures are actually to maintain precise temperature and precise humidity. And they do that through a variety of uh, techniques and airflow and uh, air balance and pressure differentials. And so that inspired this uh, huge building in uh, Zimbabwe called Eastgate that's a mixed-use uh, office complex. Uses some part of the time uses 10 to 15% of the energy of a conventional building in that climate. Um, it's really extraordinary, really, really extraordinary. Um, so that would be, you know, sort of an extreme example. Uh, you know, here locally, an example of biomimicry taken down to the level of an individual product uh, would be a company called Harbeck Plastics, uh, a Rochester-based company. They do injection molding of complex uh, plastic parts where... They're spatially complex, and they also have to be structurally sound. And cooling them down is, historically, had been kind of guesswork. How do you cool down the mold? And, and so you have the two pieces, and you inject the plastic in, and then you run fluid through a couple pipes in it and hope that that cools it down evenly and quickly. So it turns out that that's kind of guesswork. And so you slow the process down to make sure that you get an even cool and you get an even part. To speed that up would be really beneficial. It'd save you a lot of energy and it would also mean you could produce more parts in, in a shorter amount of time. So what Harbeck did uh, with the team of biologists that we worked with with them was to look at a new branch of science called constructal theory. And constructal theory is asking this question of what's the most effective flow pattern in a three-dimensional space? And to give you a great example of that, if you ever kind of look at the patterns of capillaries and veins in your hand or the veins in a maple leaf or look at a picture of a river delta, Ever notice those are kind of the same mm. thing, right? Yeah. Same pattern? That's what constructal theory is or constructal laws about is saying, if I know the three-dimensional space shape, I can actually predict what that optimal flow pattern is through that. Then there's a new branch of mathematics called Murray's Law that says, okay, if I know that space shape, I can predict both the size and the length of the various channels that I want to run through there for maximum, for most efficient flow. So what Harbeck did was said, okay, 
Um, one of the ways that plant leaves do that is what's called a dicot. And so you have major channels and then some interconnecting smaller channels. We will design a mold that we then 3D print and metal that has those patterns in them. And then make that mold. Now, it's a more expensive mold than a conventional one, but uh, what it allows you to do is cool down evenly and faster than a conventional mold, and so you save a bunch of energy in the manufacturing process, and you have better quality, and you speed up the process. Mm. Um, so that's biomimicry on, a, on the scale of just an individual yeah, yeah. No, biomimicry is fascinating to me, and it's neat to uh, be almost mining, mining for ideas out of out of things that nature has figured out over however many, however many millions and billions of years. Certain things that maybe we can we can have a little bit of humility as as humans, and and maybe learn from from some of those things. So so that's really neat. Um, I I think one of the things that popped up that I was going to ask a little bit later, but you, you mentioned. You know, maybe a more expensive mold, for example, but it's going to save you money in the long term. And I think that's oftentimes can be the case in in a lot of sustainability type endeavors. Um, you know, I just last last fall put solar panels up on my roof, and that was certainly a a cost that I had to had to bear in the short term. And hope hoping that a couple years down the road, that means I don't have any more electricity bills, which is which is neat. But with the with the work that you're doing, I'm sure there's often an upfront cost and and how do you help your uh, how do you help business owners recognize what the what the longer term savings and benefits are from the work that you're doing? So a couple of ways. One first, if, you know, particularly on building construction and all that, what we're learning is if you're really sophisticated about how you put the design together, um, and you do a really efficient building, a lot of times some of the mechanical components and some of those cost factors. Um, balance out the more expensive windows and more insulation in the walls and stuff like that. And so you can wind up with a really super efficient building that isn't necessarily any more expensive than conventional construction. So that was a really big insight. And our first experience of that was kind of in the late 90s. We started seeing that. And now we're seeing very large uh, net zero energy buildings that are coming in with almost no premium over conventional construction. Um and that was something that um, was kind of a surprise, but in the long run, really inevitable. Um, and so we've seen projects, um, even some big federal projects, where they said, okay, here's your budget. You have a fixed budget, um, and here you have to meet this level of energy performance. How you do that is up to the skill and, and imagination of your design team and contractors, but we're not giving you a penny more. And oh, by the way, if the building doesn't perform as well, then you you get penalized as, as a contractor. And that's resulted in some really extraordinary buildings. Um, and we just saw one, I saw the first big net zero energy building uh, in Singapore a week and a half ago, and it will open in about a month. And the university gave them, said, you know, Here's your budget. You don't have a penny more than uh, conventional construction, um, so you're going to have to be creative in how you do it. And it's a really, it's actually a very cool building. 
Um, and it'll open in about a month and a half. It's part of the uh, School of Architecture at the National University of Singapore. So they pulled it off in a hot, humid climate. You know, it's, it's a little easier in a cold uh, climate or in a dry climate. Um, but to pull it off in the tropics, hmm. that was a trick. Yeah. So like we talked about a little bit, I mean, since since 91 and, and really it sounds like even before having uh, environmental sustainability and, and innovation in, in those areas has been a focus for you. But how have you seen the environmental movement evolve over that time, whether whether in the way that businesses are are getting uh, you know interested in it or, you know, hopefully I, I'd like to think it's going more mainstream. But how have things evolved over the last, gosh, close to 30 years? You know, when I first graduated from college, the, the action seemed to be, we seemed to be dependent on the federal government for, you know, environmental policy and regulation and and laws and, you know, driving it that way. And I'd have to say over the last 30 years, the action and the innovation has really shifted um, to, I'd say, the level of cities uh, and businesses. And some of the stuff that businesses are doing now, we've been working for 22 years with a um, modular flooring company, a company called Interface, and they're best known for carpet tiles. And their founder had an epiphany in the mid-90s where he just realized everything he was making was made from petroleum and, you know, and, uh, and they were meeting every regulation out there, but we realized that it just meeting every regulation meant that if they were any worse, they'd be illegal. And he said, I can't, we can't keep doing it this way. So he set the company on a course that by 2020, they would have zero emissions, zero carbon footprint, zero water emissions, zero waste, um, a whole set of goals that when he first set them, the entire world looked at him and said, you're insane, right? And here we are. He died about, uh, uh, I guess about, when did Ray die? Maybe six years ago. But we're approaching 2020, and they are almost all the way there on those goals. 85% renewable energy. The carbon footprint per uh, unit of product is more than half what it used to be. Um, They... Um, are pretty much at zero waste, uh, they're going to meet all those goals. So now where they're at with their new CEO and and where the company is moving now is saying, we realize that being zero carbon is not enough. You know, and, and if you look kind of at nature, you realize nature doesn't do zero. <laughs> right? Nature is much more interesting than that. Nature stores carbons. Nature grabs carbon out of the atmosphere and does interesting things, makes materials out of it. And so that's where they're going. That's their new mission is uh, what they're calling drawdown and take back, which is actually let's not just go to zero carbon. Let's go to um, actually storing carbon and and having products that store carbon for their lifespan. And um, how they're going to get there, they don't know yet. But that you know, just like twenty almost twenty years ago when they said we're going to zero. The whole world said you're insane. They've done it, right? And it's it's amazing because they're a billion dollar company, so they're not tiny, but they're not a huge company. 
But you look at how many companies like Unilever's actually said with all of their stuff, they were inspired by Interface was the one that got them on their path. And so but where they're going with this new stuff is saying, you know, there's some interesting stuff like, you know, maybe we can use biochar in the backing or one of the things that's in the backing of the carpet tiles is limestone. Uh, and, you know, limestone, you have to mine. And yet, limestone is made by seashells and coral and stuff like that. That's bio-mineralizing that stuff out of seawater or, in some cases, other other sources. And there's now a company called Blue Planet that actually is doing that out of flue gas from power plants and industry, bio-mineralizing and making calcium carbonate limestone so it's like okay let's rather than mine the limestone let's pull it out of those biomineralize it and put it in our carpet tiles maybe we'll put some biochar in there as well and as a result every carpet tile could potentially be sequestering more carbon than it took to make it yeah, it's just it's it's incredible i have read quite a bit i've been following uh, unilever and, and some of their transition from as you were saying some crazy things that sounded crazy of being carbon neutral and now people are saying well we want to be carbon positive you know we want to we want to go from doing less bad to now how can we do more good and and i hadn't heard that specific story on the carpet tile but that's that's phenomenal that's fascinating yeah and the, so one of the projects we're doing with them uh, is also uh, their founder ray anderson asked this question one day he said could my factory ever perform as well and provide the services that the forest here that used to be here provided. And so one of their efforts is called Factories of Forest, and it's something we're doing with the Biomimicry Guild in partnership with them, um, of actually doing work where we develop a set of metrics based on what the local ecosystem uh, is capable of doing. And so you wind up with metrics either per square foot or per square acre of this is how many um, kilograms of carbon you, you capture every year. This is uh, the water balance that the site would have. This was the biodiversity count. This is how it dealt with nutrient cycles. Um, so it's a system of 15 numeric metrics that, you know, obviously we're not going to tear the factory down and put a forest in its place. We're going to keep that factory learning, and hopefully we're going to expand that factory and create more jobs. And while we're doing that, though, we're going to see if we can operate this in a way that mimics the water balance of the forest, that mimics the carbon balance of the forest. And, you know, it gives you sort of aspirational goals, you know, really interesting ones. And those aspirational goals can get pretty wild. Uh, we've also been doing this... Um, on a building in Manhattan uh, that is the size of the Empire State Building just kind of laying on its side. It was built at the same time by the Port Authority. And our original clients for the building bought the building and put a million square feet of data centers in it. And so the building has the biggest energy bill, $53 million of electricity a year in New York, and the biggest carbon footprint, 85,000 tons of carbon a year. When that site was intact native forest, it would have sequestered 3.7 tons of carbon a year. 
So one of the tenants in the building while we were doing this work and some other investigation bought the building uh, for $1.8 billion from our original clients and came to us and asked us to help them develop uh, performance metrics for the building. And their comment was, saving 30% of the energy is not googly. That doesn't inspire us. We like aspirational standards. Our goal for performance of the building in the future will be going from 85,000 tons of carbon a year to minus 3.7. Don't know how we're going to get there, <laughs> but it has led to some really interesting science work on the building and some renovations, um, new windows, a bunch of stuff on the building that ongoing should also make it a much better building for the people working in that building. Yeah, it's interesting when we were talking about biomimicry, and certainly I, I like the way that a lot of your work kind of tears down the walls of expertise. You're, you know, maybe you're coming to get an idea from a biologist, or you're, you're, you know, different different kinds of people who may have ideas on how you know we can work together to create something more sustainable. So, I'm curious from the the work that you are doing. Uh, where you're getting those ideas or how you're building those relationships or is it just kind of industry-wide that folks are are really trying to always push the envelope or how do you how do you tear down some of those traditional maybe academic silos or or those elements to to really create a collaborative partnership to 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 work together on this obviously very pressing need for for all of us I think some of it comes from you know, being trained in design and architecture. Is It's one of the few educational backgrounds where you have to be a generalist. And as buildings have gotten more and more complex, one person will never have all the knowledge to pull it off. And so you have to sort of learn, okay, who knows this, right? And you just start expanding that and expanding it. So one day we're talking to marine biologists and the next day we're – uh, talking to an energy modeler. And the next day we're asking a neuroscientist about, you know, what's going on in the brain when someone's experiencing this. And uh, the wildest new stuff we've gotten into lately is uh, uh, trying to look at noise problems in offices, you know, distraction and too much noise. And... Um, Asking the question, what would be the most effective way to mask sound in a, in a noisy office? And it turns out there's some really interesting research in a new field called psychoacoustics, which is a term I, we hadn't really heard of until fairly recently. And it's the difference between what sound is bouncing around in the space and coming to your ear. That's the acoustics. But what we don't realize is that our brain, you know, every sound in a space is always coming to our ear constantly. But we can't focus on all of that. If we did, you know, particularly if you're like in a restaurant or a noisy environment like that, we'd go nuts. We can't process that. So the brain actively chooses what it needs to focus on. And that's the psychoacoustics. And there's amazing laboratories focused on this in Germany um, and in the UK. And what they've learned is that they've done experiments where they tried white noise and they tried what's called pink sound and they tried active noise cancellation and birdsong and music and more conversations and the sound of flowing water like a small stream or waterfall. That turns out to be the most effective sound of all. 
Hmm. Um, not from a pure acoustic standpoint, but it's the one sound that the brain will pick out. Uh, other than the human voice, it's the one sound that the brain will pick out and pay attention to more than anything else. Now, we've talked to some evolutionary psychologists and we've talked to some biologists about, you know, why would that be? And they, the response is, well, that's kind of simple. Um, we can go about a month without food, but we go more than 72 hours without water and we're dead. So it makes sense that we would be attuned to the sound of water. Hmm. Wow. So, so you mentioned earlier uh, E.O. Wilson, who is a, a kind of a hero of mine. Uh, one, of, one of my favorite books, uh, he wrote The Social Conquest of Earth. And so I do a lot of leadership development, really focused on building the corporate culture of organizations. And, and he has a lot to say about just human cooperation in general that I think can then be applied to, to our organizations and, and groups that, where we're trying to cooperate. And he talks about how one of the uh, one of the first steps, so he's an entomologist, studies bugs and, and ants and things, and, and really looking at this cooperation level of the ants where they, they really are a, operating at, at a unit of, of the ant colony and, and look, doing what's best for the ant colony versus the individual ant. And he talks about how in every creature that has developed that sort of, of cooperation, that the first step is that they have a development of a nest that's worth defending uh, because then you start to defend, you start to cooperate together to, to defend this nest. And, and so I think about that in terms of when, I, when I'm trying to think about how to get more of us to, to care about the planet and care about sustainability is really seeing the, the planet as, as our nest uh, and, and seeing our, our fates as, as tied together and, and how essential that is for us to all make, you know, maybe some of those individual sacrifices. Although I think, as you mentioned, less and less it has to be a sacrifice. You don't have to pay more for these buildings. Um, but how, how have you tried to engender, you know, among, I, I know that your work's been featured in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and NPR and CNN. And, and you know, how do you start to talk to the general public to try to get them to care more about sustainability? Um, you know, for some audiences, we talk about the economics, right? That, that mm -hmm. was the economics of biophilia. Um, it's not just, oh, it feels nice. It's, oh, actually, this helps make people much more productive, you know, and it, turn, it makes properties more valuable. Um, we recently did a study of uh, the economics of hotels that had biophilic design in their lobbies and other spaces and found changed the way people use the spaces. Um, it even changed pricing of the rooms, whether or not you had a view. Um, so that's sort of one. But also as we get uh, into this more and more, we really are starting to see measurable, uh, quantifiable uh, responses on health. Mm. And... Um, that's usually one of those ones where if you launch into the conversation about people's health and well-being, that makes it very real and, and very important. And so that's one of the reasons we've really been uh, focusing on biophilia for quite a while. We were doing work at Rocky Mountain Institute in the mid-90s of documenting early green buildings and started seeing these really dramatic jumps in uh, productivity and 
in the case of Walmart sales per square foot, in Boeing's case, uh, drop in defect rate. And, and we wanted a context for how would we maximize people's well-being in the, in the, in the built space. And that's what led us to the conversation about biophilia and, and meeting some of the early researchers around that. Um, and you know, it's fun that uh, here to do this work with the zoo because one of the first researchers uh, in this field, uh, research at uh, University of Washington, who's now with the federal government, uh, Judy Thierwagen, started off doing work in zoos with uh, animals. And they were looking at the traditional zoo cage and the behaviors of the animals in those zoo cages, which was really quite bad, you know, kind of um, pathological behaviors, and the animals weren't breeding. And so they started the effort of mimicking natural, the environments those animals came from and creating mini habitats and the enclosures and all of that, and the animals were much happier, the pathological behaviors ended, animals started breeding. And then she sort of looked at standard office design and looked at 19th century zoos and said, oh, look, the cubicle farm is pretty much that. And Mm. we still, you know, it was like, okay, so if this works for other animals, shouldn't we kind of be paying attention for us? Um, Which was a really powerful insight and really valid. And so the question then becomes, how do we create the best possible spaces for people, you know, support the health and, and well-being. Um, and the studies around it have been really interesting, you know, drops in crime in some places. And uh, work in Barcelona was looking at uh, cognitive development of school children over the course of the school year and found the children that had the best exposure to nature in the schools and schoolyards um, had an increased rate of cognitive perf- development over the course of the school year. Um, so, you know, being able to see it having direct brain impacts is pretty awesome. Yeah. And, and you, I, I know you focus a, a lot on, on buildings, um, but it, at least at some points in your career, I've also done things on the, on the citywide level. And I know that, um, you know, there's a lot of things where unfortunately we've, we've built our environments in a way that, you know, especially Rochester, you know, I think things are starting to change. It's exciting to see, but for a long time was built solely on the car and we have all kinds of surface parking lots downtown and people drive in from the suburbs and, you know, building more walkable communities. We've been focusing on bringing more, more bike lanes, but what are some of the things you're seeing at the, at the city level? Cause you did mention that cities and businesses are starting to lead the charge on sustainability. Um, what are some of the more innovative cities doing on a, on a citywide level for sustainability? There are all kinds of amazing things going on. Uh, Philadelphia was about to get nailed for being grossly out of compliance on stormwater and sewage issues and going into uh, the Schuylkill River and going into Delaware Bay. And uh, so they did a study of what it would be to dig up the whole city and put down a second sewer system to separate the two and um, provide, uh, prevent combined sewer overflow. And it was billions of dollars. They brought in a local landscape architect and she did an in-depth study of what would it be to put in green roofs to take abandoned lots and turn them into mini parks that also captured stormwater and ran all of those numbers. And it turned out that 
not only would it make the city even more beautiful and and um, support neighborhoods and help encourage community gardens and and lots of social benefit, it would be way less expensive than digging up the whole city and uh, uh, creating a second system. And so that's what Philadelphia is doing, and they've done thousands of sites all through the fabric of the city. Um, it's changing uh, people's experience of the city. Um, it's definitely improving the uh, the water quality around the city, um, and it was way less expensive. You know, it has all these other interesting benefits as well. So that would be one example. Um, there are you know other cities that uh, are doing. There's a network of uh, about twenty cities worldwide now that is in a group called the Biophilic Cities Network, and they're doing really extraordinary work on how do we um, enhance people's experience of nature or even just connect people with nature in the built environment. And different cities are adding different things to that. So Singapore um, has actually developed a tool on measuring the biodiversity within the fabric of a city. And how do we then use that uh, tool to tell you where you can do moves to help improve the biodiversity along the city? Um you know, the Cuyahoga in, in Cleveland used to burn, right? That was the thing in the 60s. <laughs> the river caught fire. Now that river that the city had turned its back on for so while, so long has become a really interesting channel and all sorts of new startups along there and recreational stuff. And, and the city has rediscovered this river as an asset and cleaned it up and... Uh, um, done really great stuff around that. Um, we see incredible stuff with energy. Uh, New York City, um, a little organization that I'm on the board of, has done uh, in the last four years 10 megawatts of photovoltaic arrays, mainly on low-income housing, just inside the fabric of the city, and in the next year is going to double that to another 10 megawatts. Um, and so you see these amazing stuff and New York city has actually mapped out, um, has done maps and other cities now are doing maps of what are all the buildings that, uh, have the right roof structure and the right exposure where you could put solar on those roofs, uh, and make it really work well. Uh, and then work through in the case of New York city with the fire department on how do you do the interconnect? How do you put the structures up there? Um, and in fact, um, you know, you see things like in Washington, D.C., a step further uh, in what's called community solar, uh, which came about, it's actually the idea of a 12-year-old. Uh, he came home from school one day and he said to his folks, he said, you know, this stuff's really cool. We should, we really need to put photovoltaic panels on our roof. And they had a big oak tree out front of the house and his parents said, you know, unfortunately we got too much shade there. And the kid looked at him and said, yeah, but the Smiths down the street, they don't. Let's put it on their roof, right, and share it. And so that led to the Mount Pleasant Solar Association, which uh, was uh, something like 120 installations and shared by 70 different households. And uh, the, utilities, uh, the utility regulations then allowed what's called virtual net metering. And so... Um, 
you jointly finance stuff among multiple families, put the raise where they get most effective, and then the energy savings are shared through those families. And we're seeing that happen now in collaboratives with low-income housing in New York City as well. Wow. Doing that same approach of um, bringing solar to the folks who can least afford their energy bills in a place that has really expensive energy. Um, and it also helps with the resilience of yeah. the neighborhood. And that was a big lesson post Sandy was, hey, if we have solar arrays and batteries at community centers and libraries and fire stations and all of that, um, now we have a point of refuge for folks to go and, and recharge their cell phone, charge their medical equipment, uh, connect with people after a disaster. That's a great point that we didn't even touch on when we were talking about biophilia and bio, biomimicry. But, you know, nature's been around a while. She's, she's weathered a few, a few of those storms. So a lot of those things that, that maybe nature has found to, to be more resilient, we could, we could learn from as well. And, and actually, right here locally in Rochester, um, I, I mentioned I got solar panels on my roof. But for those that either live in apartments or don't have a, a roof that's very, very compatible for, for solar panels, uh, we have... Green Spark Solar in town that has a community solar initiative as well. So something for, for folks to check out. So I, I do want to have, uh, you know, think a little bit as well. You know, in some ways it seems like we are taking some past mistakes that we've done in the in the Western world and, and as we've developed, whether with pollution or or just not not treating the environment with it, with the reverence that it deserves. Um but now that if we're looking at developing countries and, and as they're developing, you know, we're at this moment where we need collectively to be more sustainable. But it is a little bit difficult uh, for us to wag our finger at them uh, when, when they are building and they're growing and they're industrializing uh, and, and not allowing them, I guess, to, to go through the same things that we went through. So what is your sense in developing countries of, are they embracing sustainability or, uh, you know, is that, is that something where it is, it is still a challenge? It's really a mix. Uh, but what, you know, if you look at, uh, the leapfrog that happened in a number of developing countries where, uh, they didn't have phone service, and rather than wire the country, they actually jumped, made the leap to cellular, uh, and now we're seeing that being driven by renewable energy in a lot of places. Uh, and likely, you know, the similar thing is happening not quite as quickly, but uh, jumping to photovoltaics and uh, small-scale renewable on a sort of village scale uh, in developing areas. Um, so in effect, um, them sort of bypassing some of the stages that we had to go through and just jumping to the new, to the newer, cleaner solution directly. Um, you know, there's still lots of issues with pollution and, and, uh, but there's hope, uh, and there's interesting stuff going on. Got to got to stay hopeful and optimistic, but there are there are always exciting new new elements. That's a great a great example though of kind of skipping the the landline kind of infrastructure and going right to cell phones. So so hopefully they can uh, benefit from from some of the lessons learned, I guess, over over time. So maybe that's a great place to start to wrap up. Anyways, is where do you see? This environmental movement again. You've you've been a, a pioneer for for quite a while, but where do you see it going in the next? 
I don't know, decade? How Do you see it evolving? How, how can we take it to the next level to maybe start to achieve some of those goals that now sound crazy of, you know, going from not just carbon neutral to carbon positive? You know, what's what's coming along the pipeline that's exciting you? You know, I think it's a one a realization that, you know, even though the issue seems so big and scary, we as individuals actually can make a difference, right? And, you know, the problems that we got to now uh, were small, frequently small individual or small company actions or this or that collectively, and the way we get out of it is the same way, collectively. Um, and we see interesting things, too, where it's done... So I'll give an example... Um, Subsistence fishing uh, is still the major source of protein for a lot of people in the world. And it's frequently done with nets. And those nets are useful for a period of time. And then they get so many holes in them that people throw them away. But throw them away typically means that they're wrapped on a coral reef or they're in the mangroves or on their beach or they're... That And there's still enough net left there that they're now ghost nets and they're still killing a lot of uh, fish and other animals. So there's a program that was started by the Zoological Society of London uh, with Interface, the carpet company again, in, uh, started in the Philippines where they worked with local villagers uh, to do several things. The first was to create a marine reserve which almost for a fishing village would seem counterproductive. But what that does is it protects a chunk of marine habitat, and that then becomes the, uh, the well for breeding and for young fish. And the net re- result is that the overall available fish and, and quality and size of the fish for the fishing outside the reserve increases dramatically. So that long-term preserves habitat, but also um, preserves the fish harvest for the community. The second thing they do is they work with the village to create a microbank, uh, frequently run by the, by the women in the village. And the bank um, helps then support other transactions, one of which being um, the villagers go out and collect the old nets and clean them and bale them and then they're sold to a company called Aquafil that takes that fiber, which is nylon six, which is fiber that is in raw state as energy intensive to make as virgin aluminum, incredibly, um, mm. but also incredibly durable. And they take that fiber and they bring it back to factories in, in Italy and, and Romania and remake it into fiber, and Interface then uses it for their carpet because their carpet's made from nylon six. Now, that has great social benefit, has economic benefit, and it's not a charity, right? It's a for-profit capitalist transaction uh, that benefits, has multiple benefits. Yeah, well, I I'm inspired by that example. I think one of the things we talk about in conscious capitalism quite a bit is how to find those those win 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 wins because you have to get creative sometimes. It's a little bit difficult sometimes, but usually, you know, you you kind of can fall back on trade offs sometimes. And, and if you can get creative and you can find the win win wins um, that are 
both make sense to the bottom line, are good for the planet. Uh, you know, their their opportunities are out there, and hopefully, we continue to build on that, and it becomes, in my idealistic vision, anyways, a, a race to the top of how how we can continue to um, contribute in a positive way through business, through our built environment, through design of our, of our cities and our buildings, uh, and and. It's been an honor, Bill, to, to have you here to, to talk, and, and I feel like we've just scratched the surface, but I really do appreciate your time. So for those, um, I think I'm going to be picking up the economics of biophilia. Do you have any other, uh, any other ways that we can find you to learn more and or other things that you might recommend to, to learn more about uh, biophilia, biomimicry, uh, and, and those sorts of things uh, for, for sustainability? So we publish extensively on our website. Um, all of our publications can be downloaded for free. Um, some are in multiple languages, and you can find them at the Terrapin Bright Green website, uh, which is terrapinbrightgreen.com. Great. Well, I will certainly as well link that up in the show notes. Um, everyone around Rochester and, and maybe around the country, and we, we've got some international listeners as well, um, can, can enjoy learning a little bit more about how we can build more for, for sustainability for the future. And thank you again so much for joining us, Bill. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wicked Squid Studios, Rochester, New York's premier podcast development team. The Wicked Squid family brings ideas to life through the art of audio production. From custom jingles and creative services to studio memberships and educational curriculum, their outfit strives to empower all members of society to build a more equal and colorful world. Learn more about their operation at wickedsquidstudios.com.